We do graduate school with a fair amount of student loan debt typically. So I did graduate with right around $122,000. Another another way. Sometimes the song beats around. Another day, yet another way. Sometimes the rain falls on down. Another day. Are you a millennial, Gen Xer, or a young boomer? Do you want to learn more about financial independence? Are you contemplating or already in early retirement? The Fileider Podcast is for you. The Fileider Podcast highlights, or as we like to say, highlights issues around your financial independence. Join the community as we explore millennial boomer relationships and pass the best lessons down to the next gen five millennials working to get traction and establish their healthy financial habits and their relationship with money. We'll talk about fire from FU money to early retirement and all the stuff in between. Buckle up and get ready to accelerate on your path to financial independence. Hey, this is Lambo the Firelighter, and welcome to episode 11. Today we've got a special program for you. We have Kat with PA the Fireway podcast, and she's going to be here to, to join us and talk a little bit about what life is like as a millennial uh, working on the path to five for she and her husband as they move forward. They've discovered a lot about the financial independence space, and they're taking action in their own lives. And so today, Kat's going to share some of her experiences and maybe some mistakes and some wins she's had along the way that I'm sure will resonate with each of our listeners, particularly those on the millennial side, as well as those early retirees that are watching as their adults begin their pursuit of financial independence as young people today. With that, Kat, Tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and and what you have going on. Thanks, Paul. First of all, I would like to say thank you so much for having me on as a guest. I'm really excited to do this episode with you. And my name is Kat, as you mentioned, and I am a PA, which is a physician assistant. It was recently named the number one profession by U.S. News. So even though I work in one of the best professions out there, of course, I'm a little biased, I still want to reach financial independence with the option to retire early. So I started PA the FI way, and it's both a podcast as well as a website. And I really enjoy teaching other PAs about financial independence. Wow, that's great. So tell us, uh, you know, financial independence, you know, maybe it's more well known than it used to be. But tell us a little bit about what kind of sparked that financial independence bug inside you that, uh, that got you pointed that direction? Yeah, that's great. Great question. I learned about financial independence almost two and a half years ago. And I was driving to a wedding with one of my friends who is also a PA, and both of our husbands tagged along as most husbands do to weddings. And her husband had said, Hey, Kat, you enjoy travel. Have you ever heard about travel rewards credit cards? And I said, No, what is this? 
And so he taught me a little bit about what it was. He ultimately sent me links to listen to Choose FI's podcast episodes that they talk about travel rewards credit cards. And at that point, I listened to those episodes and I thought, this is awesome because I absolutely love to travel. I would really like to do it for free. And so I learned about it that way. But then I was like, hey, this is a really interesting podcast because it talks about financial independence. So I started to binge listen basically all of the episodes from there. So that's how we learned about financial independence. That's great. I uh, I share a little bit of commonality there and that when I I originally discovered financial independence reading articles, you know, and I actually read the Mr. Money Mustaches post from 2012 when I Googled early retirement many, many years ago. Anyway, I stumbled on the Choose Five podcast after listening to the Mad Scientist and some others that came up in my feed and I gave it a shot and I ended up binge listening a bunch on the, the single and double digit episodes, uh, driving back and forth uh, out of state uh, doing some work. And and I was hooked, you know, it got inside me. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I know today, uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that you might consider mistakes along the way uh, that you may have made. And and we'll talk a little bit about some of the wins uh, along the way as well. You know, uh, it goes against my grain, but we'll go ahead and, and start with the mistakes first, and then we'll we'll finish on the positive note. You know, the positives still matter, and they generally can wipe out the negatives as long as you see the light at some point and get back on the track. So uh, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about some of the uh, the mistakes you might have made along the way? You know, what, what might be one of the first ones? Yeah, definitely. So I would like to give just a brief background a little bit about some of my student loan debt. PAs, we are medical providers, so we have master's degrees. And we do graduate school with a fair amount of student loan debt, typically. So I did graduate with right around $122,000. And that only included about one half of two separate years of undergrad debt, as well due to scholarships and a in addition to my master's degree. My first two years of undergrad were completely paid for through scholarship, through getting my associates at a community college, which I highly recommend because even if you don't get scholarships there, it's super cheap tuition. So those are great places to start. And then the second two years of my bachelor's were at a 50% discount at a private college. So those were a bit spendy. But my total debt graduating out of PA school was overwhelming at over six figures. At that time, I was so motivated to pay off my student loans. I was like, I need to get this done. Well, during one of my rotations in PA school, I was at a family medicine clinic and one of the preceptors was a couple of years ahead of me. She's been practicing for PA for a couple of years. And she said, hey, I'm going to meet my financial advisor later today. And she started talking about it. And I said, oh, well, that's really interesting. I feel like I need a financial advisor. I feel like I don't learn, didn't learn anything about finances all throughout high school, undergrad, and my master's program. So I really wanted to meet with him. So my husband and I met with him. And unfortunately, that was one of our financial mistakes because he encouraged me not to pay back my student loan debt quickly, but instead to invest in whole life insurance. So that's really not a good plan for most people. Wow. That's a big one. Uh, that's a big one. So let's let's start with the first thing you mentioned. Let's talk a, a little bit about the student loan debt. 
uh, you know, 120 plus thousand dollars. That's a lot of money. Thankfully, you did go to a community college and, and had some scholarship money that paid for some of your education and your undergrad. Or I just can't imagine how large that number could potentially be the ease at which people can get student loans. I, I kind of, um, you know, I live in a, in a university community and I see uh, a lot of students driving nice cars and everybody's got the latest cell phone and uh, they all seem to be taking spring break trips somewhere. Uh, I wonder in my mind, you know, are, are they using student loans to do to finance their lifestyle or is it actually all for their education, you know, or is it a combination? Do you feel like uh, you might have fell prey to maybe some spending when you were a student that you probably shouldn't have spent? Or is this rock solid? This is all purely pay tuition, and I lived frugally the whole time I was in training and in school. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. That's a great question, Paul. I should also modify my statement earlier about the cost of school, too. My mom also did help with a little bit of the cost. I believe it's $20,000. But as you can tell, currently, I'm even still a bit gray on all the details of those costs because no, at the time, I was not budgeting. I was completely oblivious, naive. I was taking all the money out that I could, that I could get from the bank to be able to fund my student loans. And But it also helped me to live. So most PAs do need to take student loan money out. And at the time, I did not have a roommate. I did live by myself, which I could have saved money by having a roommate. I did eat out a fair amount at restaurants with classmates after school. I would say that overall, I never spent too frivolously in the sense of I did not always need the brand new shoes, the brand new purse. I was pretty practical, low-key girl, but I still was not tracking my money at all. So you are correct. I probably was spending some of the money that I did not need to spend during PA school. Well, it's kind of hard when you're right in the middle of school and, you know, everybody else is doing it, right? And so if we're all going out to dinner at a nice place on Friday night to kind of celebrate the end of the week, you know, that's the normal thing, right? Yeah, totally. And we would have so many tests. We would have, you know, some weeks would be more than one test a week, sometimes two, and it was just really stressful. So what do you do? You try to decompress either go out to eat or sometimes order in, watch a movie with a classmate or a friend, and it could add up to certainly over time. Well, yeah, but, you know, it goes without saying that education is expensive, you know, regardless of a little spending here and there, just the pure cost of the academic cost of education uh, is a very high number. And, and with that, the means to pay for it, uh, you almost don't have many alternatives there. Uh, in terms of getting the getting the education and, and paying for it, so uh, I can understand that. The next thing you mentioned was the your your experience with the financial advisor, and and to be fair, you know I've I've got uh, a lot of friends that, that are not a lot, but some friends, very close friends that are financial advisors, and I tread lightly on this area, you know, because uh, my personal opinion is there are so many things you can do on your own. Uh, and and save tremendously on the cost. But there's also some financial advisors that truly provide education and value uh, that is 
is life-changing for people that struggle with how to handle their finances. Um, and, and those type of financial advisors, I am a complete supporter of. I, lo- I love the folks that are really helping people move forward and understanding finances and are not doing it uh, you know, with a huge incentive to push products and earn commissions and things like that. So, you know, when I hear, and this made my skin crawl when you said it, but when I hear somebody tell you, no, don't worry about paying your debt off, buy a life insurance policy that I get a humongous commission on, which, you know, as a guideline, you know, think about the first year of premiums being their commission. That's a pretty sizable chunk of money. Right. And, and, and when their incentive is to sell products they can make money on at the burden of you over the next however long you pay on that policy, right? It's not really aligned with the fiduciary interest of what's best for you as a client. Certainly. And, and so that that type of financial advisor, I uh, myself bought a variable whole life policy and it was a huge mistake. <laughs> I'd like to say that you know, as a CPA, I would know better, but everyone is vulnerable to some of the sales processes that people in that industry use and are well-trained to do. And and in my case, uh, buying a, a policy like that, when I had little kids and, uh, and a family and a mortgage and debt and all those things, you wouldn't want to leave your 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 wife with these two children and having to move out of this house and all the fear tactics that are used. Uh, and you realize you don't need to buy those as investment products. You need to buy pure term life insurance if if you need to protect that risk. And yeah. and that's something that all of us uh, maybe have fallen into that trap uh, and learned from. Nonetheless, uh, you know it's something to put in the rearview mirror, hopefully now, and and not look back. So tell me, you mentioned the student loan debt. Tell me a little bit about the rates and and if you've done anything about that or you still have most of that debt or you're making progress. Tell me a little bit more about that process. Sure. Once I graduated from PA school, I did refinance my federal student loans with a private company. So I've used SoFi. And at that point, I just thought that that was it, that I would just refinance and that was what I was stuck with, with the payments going forward. So my next mistake was that I didn't realize that you could refinance your student loans multiple times over the years as you're paying them off. So I highly recommend that if you have student loans, go and check to see if you can refinance them again, because usually you can. And when I refinanced, I did it with SoFi again. So you can refinance even within the same company that you are using. Otherwise, you can certainly shop around, price compare. But when I refinanced, it saved me about 2% in interest. So that adds up to thousands of dollars over time. Right, right. So let me ask, when you refinanced, did you did you just refinance and lower the rate or did you also shorten the terms? Uh, were you making payments on them so that when you refinanced, you know, it was capitalized at a lower balance? Uh, how did the principal side of that equation work? Sure. So we also refinanced where we would lower the amount of years to pay it back to. And then we've been making overpayments on it too. So I am seven years out of PA school. On my podcast and website, I talk about that. You probably shouldn't take at least seven years to pay off your student loans. So do as I say, not as I do. But that was the decision that we've been doing. And I'll talk a little bit more about how it may not have been the worst mistake for us because it's allowed us to invest a fair amount too. Paying aggressively now, again, 
unfortunately, at the beginning of graduating PA school and working with that financial planner, when I was so gun ho to make these giant payments, then I didn't because I was advised not to. So even at the time, even though I was advised not to make giant payments, my student loan payment was still more than our first mortgage payment. So that was very depressing to see that money go out of our account every single month. Wow. Yeah. To be fair, um, your paycheck was also a result of that student loan. So it did enable you to get the education that got the career you have to make the money you're making. And and that is a plus side of the education. Uh, but there, there's there's other areas that are challenging. So tell me a, another thing that's, uh, a, you know, often shows up early in, in your professional career is when it's time to go buy a car. Can you tell us a little bit about the car buying experience or what, what you guys did early on when you needed a new vehicle? Yeah, certainly. Throughout undergrad, I was driving a very financially independent car. I just didn't know it. It was a used Hyundai Elantra that my dear mother was very kind enough to help provide for me. So she really did help me along the way financially, and I do really appreciate all of her help and support. But I drove that car for, I believe, nine years, put tons of miles on it. I went to PA school out of state a few hours away, so I was driving back and forth during PA school. I started using that car still during my first year or two working as a PA. And when it was time for me to look at a newer car, my dear husband, he suggested that we lease a car because he had experience with leasing a car in the past and he thought that it was a pretty great way to get a newer car and you know, you're not necessarily very committed to it for over years, you get to kind of try it out. And when we went car shopping, we were looking at Jeep Grand Cherokees and he suggested that we get the top of the line one where it can have heated leather seats, heated steering wheel, which I do have to admit was really nice living up here in the upper Midwest. It could also parallel park itself, 90 degree back itself, which we use those features approximately zero times during our 39 month lease on this vehicle. So the payment of that vehicle was almost $680 a month. Can you imagine? I wasn't putting that towards my student loans or investing. I was paying almost $680 a month to drive this fancy car to and from work. So that's like $26,500. And don't even put that into a compound interest calculator to calculate the opportunity <laughs> cost, please. I would appreciate that, oh, Paul. The Hyundai, the Hyundai was free, right? Uh, granted, it, it needed to be replaced, though. So sure. uh, you know that twenty six would be offset by something, but... Uh, wow, six hundred and eighty—that's like a mortgage payment. Um, exactly. You know, my my mind's a little bit back in the nineties because that's when I uh, used to I financed a, a house, and I remember you talk about student loan debt and the interest rate on our first home mortgage. I thought it was eleven percent, but uh, it may have been in the nines. Maybe I got it down to nine percent, but I think we refinanced our house twice in the eight or nine years we were in it. I think we started at 11, we refied down to nine. And I, you know, of course, calculated how long we had to pay at that to come out ahead with the closing costs and all that. And then the last time we refinanced, um, you know, I would get every year, I if I got a bonus, you know, I would put a big piece of the bonus on my house mortgage. And then we'd have a little piece that we'd spend on vacation or something. But for the most part, 
uh, I paid down as much as I could on the mortgage so that we could be in position to have one income if we wanted to do that and, and stay at home with the kids. The last payment I had was $315 on my mortgage. That's how low it was. It was like a car oh, payment back then. That's amazing. Uh, but but by pushing that debt down, you know, paying a little extra and then refinancing, we were able to get that payment small enough where it made the one income lifestyle possible. You know, the decision to pay on debt, you know, just like you guys are pursuing right now in terms of wiping that debt out, gets you to that point where you have a little more room in your in your budget and the less of that paycheck has to go to debt. It can go anywhere else, right? Well, you know, the car, the car one is a tough one, but... Uh, it sounds like, uh, you know, that one you learned some lessons in, but we're going to flip that around because I think you're going to talk about that also on the win side. It sounds like you made some changes. So let's let's talk a little bit more now about, you know, some of the wins you've had along the way and your pursuit of financial independence. Sure. The first one. Yeah. The first one, why don't we talk a little bit about what you did after your financial planner went away or you 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 fired them, as we say, in, in the financial independence world? Yeah, definitely. So as I mentioned, I learned about FI about two and a half years ago. And in the FI community, many people talk about how working with a financial planner who is non-fiduciary and is instead a commission-based salesman is not a good financial move. And also investing in whole life insurance is not a good financial move. So once we were becoming more financially literate, listening to podcasts, I was reading several books, reading several blogs. It still took me several months and probably over a year or two to actually go ahead and cut the cord with our financial planner because they are actually very nice and outgoing and friendly people. But when I was starting to ask him more challenging questions, I just wasn't liking the answers. And Or sometimes he even want to get back to me with the correct answer. So we knew that we just needed to put an end to it and stop working with him. Instead, we transitioned to having term life insurance. Right. Well, what about, you know, I don't know if uh, when you when you uh, talk a little bit about a financial advisor, I don't know if you also have like investment accounts and stuff, but are you focused right now uh, on purely paying down debt and building kind of like a uh, nest egg, uh, emergency fund money, or are you actually also doing some investing? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a great question. We've been really working on both. And some people suggest that you kind of pick one and go all for it. But we have found that for us, we like to have a little bit of the balance of both. So I suggest looking at your interest rates for your debt to determine which ones to focus on to aggressively pay. So for example, my student loan debt is not super, super low, but it's low enough that I feel comfortable paying extra payments, but not focusing all of my money towards it. And instead, investing a lot more and maxing out my 401k, a Roth IRA, and an HSA instead. And the reason why is because of the power of compounding interest. The earlier, the younger you are that you're able to get your money invested, it has time to grow over the years and compound. So that's where our decision of, even though we're working towards five, we're still building our net worth and watching our investments increase and still carrying some of that student loan debt, which will be paid off soon, but we're not going ham on it, so to speak. 
Wow, that that is absolutely great. You know, I I couldn't agree more with everyone's financial situation. It's personal, as they say. That's why it's called personal finance, right? Exactly. But, but for you to continue to make more than required payments on your loans, you're going to knock those things out early. You're also going to be investing over time into the future. And you said the magic words, compounding. Time in the market beats timing the market. Time, time, time. I can't say it enough is for a young person to see the benefit on the long-term horizon of making those decisions to invest and leave it in and let it grow uh, is incredible. Uh, and as you will find later in life, you'll look back and say, wow, why didn't I do more? Well, it sounds like you're doing an awful lot. If you're doing sure. your Roth IRA, your HSA, you're getting all the magic boxes checked. Yep. And as soon as that student loan debt is gone, you will be begin to even put more in. You know, I don't know, lifestyle wise, you might have other goals. You may want to buy a different house or do some other things or spend more on travel or other type of areas where, as we say, is it a life of deprivation? or is it a life of joy? Having big debt balances, you think about that stuff a lot more when you have debt. And, and like, you know, when, I can't believe we have this and I, I want it to be gone, but I can't make it go away overnight. The fact is you're making a chunk of it go away every time you make a payment and you, and you probably feel a lot better about it knowing you're paying more than you quote have to, right? Oh yes, definitely. That makes me feel a lot better and I know that it'll be paid off shortly and just need to have some patience. Same with investing. It takes some time. So so the the, the bull market hasn't hurt you any. Uh, I imagine you're feeling pretty good about the decision to invest, right? Yes, totally. It was interesting when I started tracking my net worth, it was either in March or April of 2020. So I did get to see it do that approximately 30% dip. And at that time, I was reading The Simple Path to Wealth, reading blogs, listening to podcasts, and I knew to just leave it alone. I could tell that a lot of people around me were panicking. I had heard that people, you know, sold all of their investments and cashed out and but then they were stuck with when to put their money back into the market. So yeah, that book does a great job at explaining why market timing doesn't work. And one of the concepts in the book, I believe, is when you are when you do that, you have to be right twice. You have to be exactly. right at when to sell and you have to be right at when to buy. Uh, unfortunately, you know, people that make the decision to sell at the max panic are actually making the absolute worst possible decision to sell at the bottom. And it'd be nice if they said, okay, we're down 5%. I think something big's coming and you sell when it's down 5% and then you wait till it drops 30%. And then you say, hey, I think we're at the bottom. I'm perfect at predicting and I'm going to buy now with all that money that I sold when it was only down 5%. Now I'm going to buy at the bottom and I'm going to be up 50% compared to everybody else. And fortunately, um, or I should say, unfortunately, most people can't be right on both sides of that decision. And a lot of times it's even the worst case scenario where you sell at the bottom and then you're waiting to put it back in thinking it's going to drop another 30 percent. I don't know what you're thinking, but suddenly it recovers quicker than you you realize. And I, I actually uh, I wrote a blog post uh, during all this panic about the biggest market moves. and. <laughs> And six of the biggest 10 or 20 market moves since they started tracking the Dow average yep. happened during 2020. Mm. And guess what? 
half of them were moves up and half of them were moves down. You don't yep. think about that. You think about all the downs, right? Mm-hmm. But it was downs and ups. And if you didn't do anything, you wrote it down and you wrote it up. Yep. And and if you panicked, you missed and, and you pulled your money out, you missed all those big upward moves. You know, just like you know, you thought you were going to prevent future downward moves. So it is really amazing. And it it just kind of goes back to the facts support, just letting it ride. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Let's talk. I think you kind of covered uh, the term life insurance. You know, did, did you, you replace the whole life policy? Um, what, what did you do here to handle the life insurance risk? Yes, definitely. So we switched to term life insurance instead of using a whole life insurance policy. And our term life insurance is a level term insurance. So it's for several years and at a flat level premium is what exactly. that means, right? Correct. Level, yep. level premium. Exactly. So our payments do not fluctuate with time. So we were able to lock it in. We aren't the youngest or the healthiest that we would have been, you know, maybe five to ten years ago. But right. We still got a pretty good rate and we will either pay it for the years that we have it for, or if we do build up our net worth over time and truly become financially independent and don't have dependents that would rely on our income at the time, then we don't have to pay for it for that whole time. We can just stop it. And once you reach financially independence, then you're technically self-insured when it comes to life insurance. That's a great point you're making is, and I think for all of our listeners, uh, understanding why you need life insurance and then realize that the need may go away. And when the need goes away, you know, in, in some cases, a different need will come up that you say, well, I need life insurance to pay estate taxes or to pay for other things. So sometimes there's a different need and it's good to still continue that policy. But in other cases, like if you have no dependents and you're both, uh, you know, gamefully employed and you have achieved a, a fire or FI level of assets that support your lifestyle and expense needs, you may not need any life insurance and you can just cancel that policy and walk away and not pay another premium uh, and never look back. And did the life insurance service purpose? Yes. Had something taken place during that time you were paying those premiums, you would have received the face value of that life insurance and, and you would have had it for its purpose. But it did serve its purpose, even though you didn't die and didn't collect, right? You didn't need it. And so, but you definitely did the thing uh, that's probably appropriate, which was you protected yourself and your, your spouse from that risk. Yes. Uh, And, and that's a, that's a good thing to do. So uh, I think that's, that sounds great is, is uh, the term level term is really good. As you said, you know, the younger you are, the the lower the rates, because I have one policy that has uh, premiums that go up over time. And, and it's a, a term 70 policy, but it's not level. And so every five years, I hit a new bracket that causes the premium to go up. And I have sure. to sit back and say, is it still worth it to have this policy? Yeah. And as I get older, I realize it's at some point, I'll probably let go of all but the most uh, economical policies I have, some things through the, the AICPA and the, the accounting type organizations that are pretty good rates uh, and good companies as well. So I I think this is good that you re-examine over time what you need on life insurance. And, and when it is time to you know cut loose some of these policies and you know cut the bleeding on the monthly cost, you do it, you know? Yeah, um, definitely. 
Yeah. One more point that I have about term life insurance too, is that life insurance is something that you need to evaluate whether you truly need it, right? You you shouldn't just get it if you are single, don't have kids. If you were to pass away, then nobody else is relying on your income. But also I do want to make a point that if you are married, you have a spouse who does rely on your income and maybe you don't have kids yet, but you're going to be having kids, trying to set that up as soon as you can, again, because you can get the lower rate. So my husband and I both currently don't have any kids yet, but we are hopefully planning to in the future. So we were able to let the term life insurance company know that ahead of time. And we requested a fair amount. And at first they're like, well, do you really need all of this? And we said, well, we are planning on having kids. And they they said, okay. And they were totally fine with giving us more than what they were originally hoping for. So I do want to point that out too. That That is a, an excellent point, a nuance that that is something worth thinking about. Uh, if you do have plans to grow your family and it grows your responsibility. And the important thing, like you said, is the sooner that you lock in these life insurance premium policies um, on a flat policy like that, the better in terms of the rate for the dollar of coverage. So uh, I think that's a great idea and a good point for our listeners. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about something that it was on your mistake side, but but it sounds like you've got a win as well. So let's talk about what is it you're driving now? And do you have another lease? And do you have another set of options in a car that you're not using? Tell me a little bit about what you're doing on the transportation side. Yeah, certainly. As I had mentioned, we had started this lease on this Jeep before we learned about five. So once we learned about it, we had several more months, even over a couple of years left to make this lease payment. And it broke my heart a little bit every month to make this payment. But we still enjoyed the fun vehicle. I'll be honest, it was a nice vehicle. It was fun. But in January of 2021 was when the lease was up. And when we returned the lease, I felt as though I was actually buying a new car. That's how excited I was. I was so excited to just get rid of this car. And instead, my husband and I were able to use a 2004 Suburban that was his great uncle's. And we were able to pay cash for it of $5,000. And it currently has 192,000 miles on it. And although it doesn't have all the nice features, it doesn't have remote start that I'm able to just start it from a nice warm building in the winter up here. I just remind myself every day that I am totally content with this. It just takes me from point A to point B. It takes me to and from work. I'm okay driving this older car. I don't have to look cool. It doesn't have to be fancy because I'm able to save and invest for the future. Wow. That is a huge action you took. I was thinking as you talked I'm smiling because one of the mantras, you know, I, I can't remember who I heard it from, but uh, I've I've written about it is uh, is the secret is wanting what you have, not having what you want. And, sure. you know, I got to believe you get into that car and you turn the key and you're like, it's paid for, baby. I ain't no $680 going to leave my <laughs> bank account. I am driving. The, think, well, I got to do some more math here. I'm going to reach over and grab my calculator. <laughs> 680 divided by 30 days, okay? That's, that's, that's $23 a day that you're not spending. Think about it. That's free lunches and free dinners every day. Sure. Every day that you were burning on a lease payment. And so, uh, yeah, the $5,000 counts too. That's to be fair. But 
But $680 a month is a pretty big payment to see go away and not be replaced. So I got to believe that $680, a big chunk of that's going on your student loans and into your investments now. Exactly. And uh, I'm wondering, you know, if it's only been, I guess, you know, eight months or however many months now that you've saved this money. But is it is when you look at your, your finances every month, are you feeling like it's helping you get a lot more traction? Sure. That's a great question. I really do. And I have a story about that, actually. I switched jobs back in January. Throughout my first four and a half years of practicing as a PA, I was in family medicine. Our profession has the luxury that we're able to move into different specialties throughout our career. So I switched into outpatient psychiatry. And when I was negotiating with the company about the amount of hours I wanted and the days I wanted to work, I was actually going to work 40 hours, but they didn't give me the day off that I requested that they had originally promised. And and so I said, okay, well, I really would like to dial back my hours at work then and just for it to be able to work better for our lives. And so my husband and I sat down and we ran the numbers and we're like, well, with that payment gone and we've been able to cut back on costs, then it can actually work out. So I was able to cut back to 35 hours per week ever since January. It's been great that we're able to make that decision because we're able to do that, but we're still able to save and invest. So here we are on a Friday afternoon, (laughs) and you and I are talking on a Friday afternoon because I'm retired and you negotiated a four-day work week. Is that what I'm hearing? Correct. Yep. I actually did have a four-day work week most of my working career, but I was doing 40 hours in four days, which was a lot. And again, when you are trying to save and invest and pay off your student loans, certainly that's very advisable. But I have other passions besides medicine. Clearly, I have my podcast. We do a lot of trips out of town. We do a lot of traveling. And it just working five days a week just isn't in my radar anywhere in the near future. And it takes so much time to do these projects. I'm really thankful to have been working four days for several years. So that's that's quite a chunk of time that gives you the liberty of, you know, kind of experiencing, uh, you know, what it's like to have a little independence. I think that brings to attention, it's gray. It's not black and white. You're pursuing financial independence, but along the way, you're actually taking some of that independence that's been freed up by financial strength in the decisions you're making and then the incomes you have. And, and you're still able to make progress while only working you know, four days a week, which allows you to do what you want to do with the rest of that time. Vicki Robbins' book, Your Money or Your Life, you realize you're, you're trading time for money. And so to the extent that you, know, you don't have to give up as much time You've got more time to spend the way you choose to spend that time and, and, and help you explore other areas and passions you might have. That is awesome. A really, really neat uh, Thank you. situation you've created there. So, yeah. Well, hey, let's, let's talk about a couple other questions I had for you. One of the questions I had, you mentioned discovering you know, financial independence and the, and, and the FIRE movement. Tell me a little bit about what in that realization and that lifestyle change that you guys have clearly begun to make, uh, what has been the hardest shift to make? You know, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I would say that we had to learn to mindfully spend. We went through so many years of 
just spending frivolously on things that we wanted. And as our income increased, unfortunately, so did our expenses because we weren't preventing lifestyle creep. So I think the hardest part was really just taking a grasp on what we were spending, sitting down, making sure that we're not just spending money frivolously and be mindful of what we truly value. Well, that's, that's a good point. You know, uh, I think it might've been in, uh, I will teach you to be rich, but one of the books I read, you know, they, there's a concept of conscious spending and, and it's like you said, just that awareness level of, of where money goes. I grew up and you grew up. It's still the same as it was many years ago is you, you grow up watching TV and watching advertisements I believe that the marketing efforts of companies uh, truly, truly guide the culture and the consumption uh, and consuming mentality that a lot of people have where you feel like you need to have stuff, you know? Sure. Um, and, and I think that's, that's something that creates a norm of, oh, yeah, you can buy this. You need this. You can get it. You can use a credit card. That mentality to me is, is really something that makes it it makes it like you're an exception versus the norm when you say no to those things. Uh, and in some cases, to the extent that you're saying no, do you feel like you have living like a deprived lifestyle because you're you're not spending on, on stuff like that? Or do you think that matters? Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. I think that's a really great question. And it has many layers there for sure. So personally, I don't feel deprived. My husband might say he might feel a little deprived because he is a little bit more of the spender and he loves his toys. And granted, we both have lots of toys and that we get to enjoy. So we are very fortunate in that way. But we try to have those discussions of, hey, do we really need this toy for this year? You know, maybe wait till next year. If we are going to move, where are we going to move to? Those types of things. If we're thinking about that and just being more mindful again about our spending. But I absolutely do not feel deprived. Um, we are still able to enjoy many of our hobbies. As I mentioned, I absolutely love to travel and I utilize credit card rewards, travel points, and are able to travel for really reduced costs, if not free. And then we also, one of our toys is a ice fishing house. So We live up north. We spend many of our long weekends out on the lake, camp out on the lake in your fish house. And so that's not an inexpensive hobby by any means, but our winters can last for about six months of the year. And granted, we can't use the fish house all six months, but we use it many months of the year, many weekends. It's not cheap, but we it's our hobby that we enjoy. We do it together. We spend time with friends and family doing it. And so we're able to again, focus on those things that we value and enjoy and don't feel deprived. Wow. I I love hearing about this fish house. Okay. I've got an image in my head, sure. <laughs> you know, of, of, now I got to know, does your husband tow this fish house out onto the lake with his snowmobile or is this like a truck or what, how do you get this thing out on the lake? Yeah. Great question. We use his truck to tow it out there and you do have to be mindful, obviously, of how thick the ice is. So in the early or late winter, when the ice isn't very thick, we often will just walk out on a lake and not be able to get out super far. Or sometimes you will use like four wheelers or snowmobiles to get out on when we call it early or late ice. Right. I'm thinking back. I spent three years early in my life living in Illinois. It gets adequately cold near Chicago as well. I can tell you that. Dad used to 
freeze ice uh, in the vacant lot next to the house there. And we had like a little hockey rink we would, the neighborhood kids we'd play on. Down the hill, and all this, of course, has developed now, but down the hill there was this pond, and we would sometimes tote our ice skates down to the pond and and skate uh, down there. And my my little brothers, we were well, I was six when I moved south, so they were five and or lower, and they had like those double bladed skates back then. The little kids had. Sure. Anyway, I remember to this day, but one of them had had broken through the ice in this pond, and it it was probably a foot and a half deep or something. But but to this day, I can remember that, <laughs> and I'm like. Getting on thin ice is always dangerous. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I'm wrong if I'm imagining like a satellite TV and a nice heater inside this fishing hut you have. Oh, uh, you are not wrong. We have two TVs in this fish house with a fireplace because my dear husband thought we needed a fireplace in the fish house that we currently have. So we will, you know, cook in there. We bake cookies. We watch movies. It's it's really fun. And you're it's almost like you're kind of camping in a little tiny house or cabin, so to speak. What I really like about this is it's almost like you have a second real estate property that you're not having to pay property taxes on. It's like <laughs> you it's like mobile real estate. You take out on the lake and you've got your own place to hang and watch football or whatever. And sure. it just sounds like an absolute fun time out sure. there on the ice. It's it's a blast. Uh, it's definitely a depreciating asset, not an appreciating asset like most real estate. And I've certainly had my entrepreneurial mind suggest to my husband, why don't we rent this out to people? But he doesn't want to do that. So I I feel an Airbnb rental that's not a real address coming along here. There you go. uh, That is a side hustle you might want to keep working on. Sounds like a really cool thing to do. So I'm going to have to put that on my bucket list or something. (laughs) Yeah. Anytime you're up here, you're welcome to join us. That that sounds like a worthwhile experience, you know. One of the things that I'm no uh, in in observing my my own kids as adults and 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 a lot of their friends is it seems that these these young people today, uh, boy, I, I never thought I would say words like that, uh, but they enjoy experiences more than things. Yeah, and and the experience is what really is bringing them joy, and and they realize more so than I did probably at that age, is maybe a more of a minimalist lifestyle. You know, I don't say an absolute minimalist, but uh, as I get older, I feel like less is more and you need less things to take care of so you can spend more time doing things you enjoy. And and I think that's true whether you're talking about uh, younger generations or, or older generations is uh, there's a time for things or toys. Let me just ask, does, do you guys have a snowmobile? Oh, yes. He has one. It is older. It's more of a five one, but that's one of the toys of contention currently because he would like a newer one for this coming year. But we will see what happens. I'm trying to max out my Roth IRA instead. <laughs> now, you got to put your money where your mouth is. You know, if it brings a lot of joy, it's still okay. Exactly. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, but I guess, you know, where I'm going with the snowmobile question is, you know, let's say he gets the new snowmobile. Do you need two of them? Because like, you know, you do things together on them or you ride together or what, you know, or bring a friend along and they can have a snowmobile to go with you on a little outing. Or do you say, you know, we don't need to maintain two snowmobiles. It's never going to be worth more than it is today. Let's sell it and turn that cash into something else. 
Yeah, that's a great question. The one that he's looking at is only a one person riding snowmobiles. So it really would be for him. I don't really go that much. So I don't know if he would keep his older one or what. Honestly, it it probably would not be something that the two of us could ride. And so he goes, well, you could get one too. And I'm like, mm, I don't think I need that. No, so. what I'm hearing, <laughs> what I'm hearing is stay tuned. He's going to be on X games on a snowmobile. So that's probably, you, you, sh- <laughs> you need to share that with him. Cause I have an expectation now, if I get up that way, uh, I'm going to see some serious stunts in the hills near the lake. Sure. Yeah, so that is absolutely great. Well, you know, this is incredible. This has been a great interview, and I really appreciate you joining us on the show. Sounds like, you know, you, you guys are working through the fire transition. Um, I'm really excited to hear how many uh, actions you guys have taken to actually make a change. And, and those changes are affecting the bottom line and affecting, you know, your ability to get to financial independence a little quicker. Something that two years ago you had no knowledge about, and now it's changing your decision processes. Exactly. And so, is there any one thing that you know you guys have done along the way of making these changes that just you know you sit back and you look at it and you say that amazes me? I can't believe how well this is this has gone since we made this this decision. Sure, I would say that again. Just being really mindful of, of what we're spending has really helped us, and. Also, I think tracking our net worth has been very motivating because we have seen our net worth increase over time. And that's just super motivating to be able to continue on this journey for sure. Yeah. I I don't know if you use personal capital or not, but uh, it's one of the things that many people do use. And and I will say having that big blue number show up on the top left when you pull up the screen and it updates, it's been a plus minus for me, you know, because it's neat to see it grow. But then there was that scary month of March last year that <laughs> you saw it shrink. Exactly. But, uh, and the other thing is, as you make debt payments, if your debt is being tracked there as well, you know, it's going into your net worth calculation. So every time you make a payment, yeah, you may be using some cash, but your liabilities drop. And so your net worth goes up on that debt payoff. So uh, I, I will say keeping score matters. And, and, uh, and to be fair, you know, I'm guilty of as a financial guy, I say closing the books. I don't do it every month now, but I do do it every quarter. But, but every month I update the balance sheet and the balance sheet has, you know, all of our accounts and investments and retirement plans and then credit cards. Even though we pay our credit card off every month at that point in time, because I'm a stickler for the way financial statements are prepared. It's at that point in time, we had a balance on our credit card because the payment had not yet posted. So I subtract it, you know, because the cash is somewhere up above and you really want to net it out. Um, I do close the books every, every month that I look at the balance sheet every quarter. I look at expenses and spending, uh, and, and that is a tangible, hard data point that, you know, kind of confirms that things are going like you think they're going and, and seeing your net worth grow, like you're saying, does give you a little bit of joy, uh, every, every time you pull it up. So Definitely. It, it's a measure of, of your success. For well, sure. hey, tell us how uh, listeners can find out more about you or your podcast or get on in touch. Yeah, certainly. So you can find me at my website, which is PA the FI way.com. My podcast is called PA the FI way, and it's found on the podcast player of your choice. I'm on Instagram at PA the FI way. And then I also have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. The Facebook group is a private Facebook group for 
current and future PAs. And you're able to go ahead and join that if you would like. And it's also called PA the FI way. Well, that's great. Of course, we'll put links to that uh, podcast and website in our show notes. And I'll encourage you to take a look at her website. Kat's got some great uh, resources there, particularly with the PA spin on them. And I think it's a unique uh, set of uh, resources that, that would provide some insight to you and things that are PA related, as well as just general millennial finance challenges. So uh, please take a look at her website uh, and give her, li- her her podcast a listen. Uh, it's refreshing and it's different. And 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 as uh, I, I like to think about some of my fellow podcasters out there in the podcast universe, there's a podcast for you and hers, particularly if you're in a medical field or uh, a PA, you know, it's right up the alley and dealing with the same type of things that you'll be facing going forward. So give it a listen. And uh, thank you for joining us Today, episode 11, I'm Lambo, the Phi Lighter. What a great episode. So let's talk about some of the takeaways today. Number one, term life insurance. Whole life insurance can be a very expensive solution and can be sold to you to meet a lot of different needs that are not necessary. Term life insurance is generally an economical way to take care of that risk and provide for those around you in the event of a loss. We learned some great ideas here in terms of getting a better rate, uh, maybe buying more insurance before you actually need it all, just to lock in those nice level premiums over the long term. Number two, refinance those student loans, not only to lower the interest rates, but possibly also shorten the term, get them paid off quicker, and move on down the road debt-free. Number three, travel rewards. This is one that I also enjoy doing. Um, It's very economical to travel if you can use points and other incentives to pay for much of your travel cost. Great tips for that one. Number four, car purchases. Don't lease, and if at all possible, pay cash for that car. This is something that can save a tremendous amount over many years uh, as you buy cars over your lifetime. Number five, mindfully spend. Be mindful of what you truly value. This is actually uh, another great point, is just being aware of where your money goes and challenge those things to say, are they bringing us joy and happiness or is it an unnecessary expense? If you're not aware, uh, you won't know that you care. And the last item, take action. As you heard in many cases, um, Kat and her husband had, you know, maybe veered off the best course for getting toward financial independence. But in the case of the vehicle example, she made a great decision to not lease another vehicle, but find something that they could pay cash for and continue to save that money every month and use it to pay off debt or invest in the stock market. If you don't take action, nothing will change. That's the biggest point, I think, out of all, is knowing what to do and actually doing it are two different things. You know what they say, do what I say, not what I do. Well, you know, it's really hard to do it sometimes, but you actually have to take action to make change. And always remember, mind the gap. Grow the gap. Income minus expenses is the gap. 
Grow the Gap. Remember our disclaimer. I want to remind each of our listeners that the content in this podcast, including any show notes or links, the Phylighter blog, and the Phylighter website, are entirely educational or entertainment in nature, and you should seek a professional for tax, investment, or legal advice. We are not tax or investment experts and are not in any way providing expert advice, so please seek your own tax, legal, and other professional for advice and counseling. Phylighter or its creators accept no responsibility or liability for any actions or activities you may take based on anything discussed on the website, podcast, postings, or comments. We'd love to hear your thoughts on our content, areas you'd like to hear more about, and any feedback. Be sure and subscribe to the Phylighter podcast now. Continue receiving content as it is published. We're excited that you chose us and are committed to bring our community actionable content and be a catalyst for your pursuit of financial independence. If you're hungry for more, visit phylighter.com. Buckle up, downshift, and dump the clutch. You're in for an accelerated ride into your financial future with Lambo, the Phylighter. This episode was recorded September 17th, 2021.